I'm Dennis Tubergen. You are listening to the Retirement Lifestyle Advocates radio program. Glad you decided to listen in today. Hey, it is the month of August, which means I have a brand new special report for you this month. This month and this month only, the report is titled Five Reasons to Consider a Roth IRA Conversion Now. There is a lot going on in the economy, and there have been recent changes to the tax code and more proposed changes coming that may make a Roth IRA conversion something that you'll want to consider. I'd like to send you a free report that has information in it for you to consider. All you need to do to get your copy of the report is visit the website requestyourreport.com. And when you request that report, I will not only send you the report, I'll also send you a couple of my best-selling books, as well as some other information that I think you'll find timely. So again, the August special report titled Five Reasons to Consider a Roth IRA Conversion Now. You can get it by visiting the website, requestyourreport.com. Well, you know, here on the program, I have for most of 2022 given you my opinion that I believe the U.S. economy was in recession. Now, you can certainly go back and listen to all the radio programs or all the radio programs that uh, you care to by visiting the Retirement Lifestyle Advocates website at retirementlifestyleadvocates.com. And when you do, you'll find that it has been my belief that the economy is slowing, largely due to the inflation that we're seeing. Well, now we can really take the question mark away from, are we in a recession? We are in a recession. I want to give you just a bit from a CNBC article that I read last week. And I'm quoting, the U.S. economy contracted for the second straight quarter from April to June, hitting a widely accepted rule of thumb for recession, the Bureau of Economic Analysis reported on Thursday. Gross domestic product, which is the measure of economic output in the United States, GDP fell 0.9% at an annualized pace for the period, according to the advance estimate. That follows a 1.6% decline in the first quarter and two straight quarters of economic contraction, or as economists might put it, negative economic growth, really talks about and, and defines a recession. Now, I have been in the financial industry for about three decades. And for that entire time, a recession has been defined as two consecutive quarters of economic contraction. Now, regardless as to the political spin that you may be hearing to the contrary, a recession is here. Now, not surprisingly, the White House issued a statement to attempt to get ahead of the recession news. And in essence, they are trying to change the definition of what a recession is. And I'm going to give you the statement from the White House. And I have actually uh, included this in my August client newsletter. And uh, you'll get this story in the newsletter. When you request the report, I'll include a copy of the newsletter as well. So you can see this again, the website to visit to request the report and the newsletter is requestyourreport.com. So here is the statement from the White House, quote, what is a recession? While some maintain that two consecutive quarters of falling real GDP constitute a recession, that is neither the official definition nor the way economists evaluate the state of the business cycle. Instead, both official determinations of recessions 
and economists' assessments of economic activity are based on a holistic look at the data, including the labor market, consumer and business spending, industrial production, and incomes. Based on these data, it is unlikely that the decline in GDP in the first quarter of this year, even if followed by another GDP decline in the second quarter, indicates a recession. Now, that statement is obviously an effort to spin the story favorably during an election year. Uh, and a nonpartisan note here, neither party has a monopoly on story spinning. This is just politics. But it really doesn't matter what you want to call two consecutive quarters of economic contraction. We can all agree that it's not good economic news, no matter how you decide to try to spin the story, or no matter how you try to change the definition of what a recession is. Now, in my view, the primary culprit of this recession is Federal Reserve policy, and we talk about that on this program a lot. Federal Reserve, the Federal Reserve, I should say, has expanded the currency supply to such a great extent as to cause inflation unlike anything seen in more than 40 years. The currency creation that has been taking place is merely an attempt to mask the symptoms of deflation, which emerge as a result of debt levels that are simply too large to be sustainable and too large to be serviced. So ironically, the currency creation policy simply adds to debt levels. I know that's a hard concept to maybe get your arms around, but what it does is makes the eventual economic landing a lot worse than it would have been. Now, in my view, based on these numbers, the recession is here and the average consumer in America is feeling it. Now, this is an interesting statistic that I found at Real Investment Advice. At the beginning of calendar year 2022, the average American family was experiencing an annual deficit. Now, by annual deficit, I simply mean the, the difference between their income and expenses. So the average American family, according to Real Investment Advice, began 2022 with an annual operating deficit, if you will, of $4,500. That means that their expenses on an annualized basis exceed their income by $4,500. And certainly we've reported here on the program that credit card debt this year has more than doubled. That squares with this statistic. But here is the shocking part. As shocking as that really is, here is the shocking part. Presently, that same American family has an annual operating deficit of $6,350. So this family began the year with a $4,500 annual operating deficit. Their expenses exceeded their income by $4,500. And now, just seven months later, that deficit is now $6,350. And that's an increase of more than 40% in a matter of months. No matter how you try to spin the recession story, no matter how you try to spin the inflation story, it is affecting the U.S. economy at a very significant level. The U.S. economy is more than 70% dependent 
on consumer spending. So when the average American is operating at a deficit, when the average American has more in expenses than they do in income, it's no surprise that the economy is contracting. Now, as far as inflation goes, don't look for any meaningful improvement in inflation until we have real positive interest rates. Well, what does that mean? Well, the official inflation rate, which is, as we have discussed, a highly manipulated number, the way that the official consumer price index is calculated, consumer price index is the official inflation rate, has been heavily manipulated really since 1980. But even after all these adjustments, to use that term, the official inflation rate is 9.1%. And the 10-year U.S. Treasury note at the time I put together the April You May Not Know Report newsletter was 2.66%. So with inflation, if you were to put money in a 10-year U.S. Treasury note, you would realize a real net return of a negative 6.44% after taking into account the real inflation rate. And that assumes the official inflation rate is accurate, which it really isn't. Past guest here on the program, John Williams, estimates that if we use the same inflation calculation methodology that was used in the 70s, the current inflation rate would be about 17%. So we are a long way from getting inflation under control, in my view. Now, you'll get this complete story as well as the August special report. The August special report is titled Five Reasons to Consider a Roth IRA Conversion Now. When you visit the website requestyourreport.com, all you have to do when you visit that website is let me know where to mail the report, the newsletter, as well as two of my best-selling books. All this information is free. It's designed to give you some additional resources to help you navigate what may lie ahead. So again, to get the report, it's requestyourreport.com. And uh, just let me know where to mail that stuff, and I'll be very glad to do that. I'll be back after these words with my special guest, Mr. Alistair McLeod. Welcome back to RLA Radio. I'm your host, Dennis Tubergen. Joining me once again today is the head of research at Gold Money, Mr. Alistair McLeod. Uh, you can actually uh, read Alistair's work, which I would encourage you to do at goldmoney.com. There's an R Research link that you can click on, and uh, Alistair's articles are posted there. And Alistair, welcome back to the program. That's my pleasure, Dennis. So, Alistair, last time you were on, which has been about four months or so, um, you made the prediction that you thought uh, we were going to see at some point the end of fiat currencies and we would likely see a hyperinflation. And you can correct me if uh, I'm misstating anything. Uh, is that still your view? Uh, yes, it is. Um, obviously, this is not something that happens overnight. But uh, I think um, we can probably agree that uh, there is evidence that we are drifting in that direction. So, Alistair, when you take a look at uh, here in the United States, for example, we've had two quarters of negative economic growth. Um, to what extent would you say that the monetary policies are to blame for this official recession, even though we're not supposed to call it that? Well, 
Obviously, um, very much so. Uh, And uh, it's not just monetary policy, but it's um, the whole business of intervening, government intervening in private sector activities. And I would also say that the point about um, GDP is that actually it's just uh, a record of the total amount of credit uh, in the economy or in the economy to the extent it qualifies uh, on spending uh, and production of the goods which are included in GDP. It doesn't tell you anything about how that credit is actually used, whether it is used productively or not productively. And the important thing is to is that word credit, because the, what it means is that GDP is actually tied to the bank's willingness to increase their lending. Now, if the banks turn around and decide that their balance sheets are overgeared or the amount of risk in their lending uh, uh, books has increased, then they will tend at the margins to reduce their outstanding lending. Now, that inevitably leads to a fall in GDP. So the thing we need to watch is not so much what's going on in the economy to uh, try and predict the course of GDP, but what's actually happening in uh, in the credit markets. And I think this is a very important point, which um, nobody in the investment industry, and uh, I don't think even in the central banks, really fully understand. It is a very important point, and there are implications that flow from that, obviously. So, Alistair, uh, just for it's – it's a terrific point, and I think it's a perspective from which uh, – Again, most most analysts uh, don't, don't look at things. So, uh, just talk a bit, if you would, about what's going on in in banking and as far as the the credit markets go. Uh, you know, over the past couple of years. Yes, yeah, sure. I mean, over the past couple of years, we've seen uh, a massive expansion in uh, the quantity of broad money, narrow money as well. Now, a lot of this is put down to COVID. <clears throat> Sorry, excuse me, but. Um, And certainly banks found themselves in the position that um, if they called in loans, then uh, with business having virtually ceased, I mean, basically their customers would go bust and uh, they wouldn't recover anything from their loans. So you can see that there was a great disincentive for the banks to reduce their overall levels of credit. And particularly when uh, governments um, around the world, I don't know the exact detail in America, but certainly here, uh, uh, the banks were given government guarantees behind loans uh, so that uh, businesses would not be forced to go to the wall. So That, I think, was the background. Now, that has created an inflation problem, which is now leading to rising interest rates. Now, when you get very low interest rates, then the way the banks make money or increase their profits is basically by increasing the the leverage on their balance sheet. Why? Because the difference between uh, what they lend it out to and uh, what they have to pay depositors actually narrows. So they need to have more assets on their balance sheets uh, in order to increase profits at the shareholder level. Uh, and and uh, you know, consequently, um, when interest rates start rising, then they have a natural inclination to start reducing their balance sheets. So what we've got is we've got the, the, the situation where post-COVID, government guarantees are basically being withdrawn from most banks. Um, the, um, we've got rising interest rates, which is also undermining the value of bank collateral, where it is held 
in the form of financial assets. So everything is beginning to go against the banks. And what was very interesting was that I think it was um, either in the very uh, beginning of July, it might have been in the last week of June, Jamie, Jamie Dimon stood up at a conference, banking conference in New York and said that um, two weeks before, he said that the economy faced stormy weather. I'm upgrading that, he said, to hurricane force. Now, that was a very important message because Jamie Dimon is the most important banker in the world. I mean, commercial banker, I mean, in the world. This is very, very important. What he's saying is that his bank is not going to take on more risk. It cannot take on more risk. You could go further and say, um, you know, at the margins, that obviously, that his bank is obviously going to reduce the amount of bank credit risk. So he is likely to contract JP Morgan's uh, um, overall obligations. On top of that, because he is the most important banker in the world, every other banker who uh, was sort of aware of what he said, if they hadn't actually arrived at the same conclusion themselves, which they almost certainly would have done, would have taken note. And this is a very, very bearish development. It's, it's, it's not often we get a very clear signal that the whole of the banking system is looking to reduce its balance sheet, which basically feeds into GDP. So we get a reduction in GDP. And I think we've only just seen the start of it. This is something that could be particularly severe because if you look at the makeup of, um, of credit markets in the United States, Credit from the central bank in the form of banknotes is only 10% of the money in circulation. So what we're talking about is 90% of the money in circulation being bank credit. If that begins to contract in a meaningful way, then there is going to be a slump. So, you know, the two quarters that you mentioned, I think, are just the start of something which is likely to be considerably more severe. So, Alistair, when, when you just that's a remarkable statistic, and uh, I always learn something when I talk to you, and today is no exception. Uh, when 90% of the currency in circulation is actually bank credit, uh, and when you look at all the currency in circulation, as this starts to contract, I mean, we're, we're going to be looking at something that is really depression level, aren't we? Uh, yes, I mean, that is certainly um, a likely outcome and is the risk, which I think that increasingly central bankers are worried about. And it, it, it rather explains um, some of the things that seem to be going on in the background, uh, because we have got, um, I think, a coordinated effort by the major central banks to try and calm down the inflation story because they are worried that if they have to raise interest rates further, it's just going to tip the whole of the commercial banking system definitely into contracting the amount of credit that it offers the overall economy. So um, we are seeing this now. We've seen bond yields fall fairly, fairly steeply. And this is despite the fact that with interest rates, I mean, you, you've got um, Fed funds rate is standing, I mean, they keep on changing it. So I can't remember what it is, but it's around about 2% or something or 2.5%. And you've got uh, inflation measured by the uh, consumer price index running at um, just under 10. I, this, is, this is still far too large a gap to stop the falling purchasing power of the dollar, the 
dollar will continue to lose its purchasing power. What's happening is that it's not just the dollar, every other currency is as well. But other currencies have got even greater problems. If you look at the situation with the Japanese yen, for example, they have, uh, the, the Bank of Japan has taken on enormous quantities of um, uh, uh, government debt on its, on its, on its um, own books, as well as um, even equities through uh, uh, exchange-traded funds. And consequently, the bank cannot afford to see bond yields rise, which basically means that the uh, mark-to-market value of the assets that has been, been accumulating since the year 2000 it goes down the pan. And um, the same with the ECB. I, was cal- I calculated that at the beginning of last month, the ECB's um, uh, balance sheet losses were probably in the region of 750 million, sorry, billion euros. Now, that's against uh, a level of equity capital in the whole euro system of 109 billion euros. So, you know, they're almost seven times underwater. Oh, the Bank of Japan, I think, is probably considerably worse. But this is, um, this is the sort of problem we have. We've got central banks which, on rising interest rates, um, are effectively insolvent, having to underwrite the commercial banking network, which is running into the same problem. This is a major, major um, uh, problem which we have to try and find some way out of. And I think the central banker's means of trying to get out of this is to try and dissuade us that prices are going to continue to rise. Now, I think we've then got to look at the geopolitical situation because all that is entirely dependent, really, on whether Mr. Putin manages to push up uh, energy prices much more. And I think that that is bound to be something that he regards as being in his armory. Well, Alistair, we're sneaking up on the end of a segment already. Uh, For our listeners maybe that are not familiar with gold money and the kind of work you do, uh, we've got about a minute and a half left for a brief commercial, if you'd be so kind. Oh, that's very kind. Thank you, Dennis. Well, gold money basically stores precious metals for um, uh, customers outside the banking system. And we offer a range of fully insured vaults around the world. So you can live in one place, store your gold, silver, or platinum group metals in another place. Uh, And um, I basically write the research for uh, gold money. And uh, I publish research every Thursday. um, And I do a market report on Friday. So that's roughly what we are. Um, The gold and silver and platinum group metals, which we hold for our customers, are all off-balance sheet, it's all custodial arrangement, um, and it is outside the banking system. So uh, most of our customers, I think, see this quite rightly as being a means of insulating themselves from the potential troubles of a fiat currency system when the risks in that fiat currency system appear to be rising. Well, my guest today is Mr. Alistair McLeod. Uh, he is the head of research at Gold Money, and I'll continue my conversation with Alistair when RLA Radio returns. Stay with us. I'm Dennis Tuberg, and you are listening to RLA Radio. I have the pleasure of chatting today with Mr. Alistair McLeod. Alistair is the head of research at Gold Money. You can learn more about his work at goldmoney.com, and uh, you can click on the Our Research tab to uh, read his articles. So, uh, Alistair, just to kind of continue where we left off in the last segment, uh, you stated that uh, really there uh, is, in your view, 
a, a coordinated effort to kind of calm down the inflation story and, and dissuade us that you know prices are going to continue to rise. As you said that, it just seemed to me that uh, if you're trying to control the narrative versus you know correcting the underlying problem, it may seem that this whole situation is too far gone, far gone to actually control the problem. Am I reading that correctly? Yes, I believe you are. Um, it's difficult uh, to know how um, central banks can actually deal with this because they don't actually have the mandate to deal with the problem properly. What they should do is basically stop intervening and let markets set the rate. But the problem is that if the market sets the rate, then not only are commercial banks in trouble, not only are all the malinvestments, in other words, companies that have borrowed money on the basis that is cheap rather than productive, uh, they're also all in trouble, and the central banks themselves in, are in trouble. So not only do they not have a mandate to actually address this problem, but um, if they did address it, they would probably threaten their own existence. So, yeah, I mean, I can't really see that there's a sensible way out of this. It's, it's always a case of crisis first, solution second. And unfortunately, I think the crisis that we now face is potentially a lot more severe than anything we have seen since the Wall Street crash in 1929 to 1932 and the aftermath of that in the 1930s. So, Alistair, when, when you take a look at the, the Fed's policy, they, they just raised interest rates uh, uh, three-quarters of a point at their last meeting. Uh, you know, they, the last time they tried to do this, their, their balance sheet was a lot smaller, and uh, when the economy and the market started to react negatively. They, they, they chickened out. They, they reversed course. Um, I have said that you know, I, I think they're going to have to do the same thing again because uh, they, they don't really have another tool that, that they can use. Uh, do you agree with that? Uh, yes, I do. And uh, I, think, I think the point you make is absolutely right. I mean, really, you're talking about um, the time between, well, particularly between September 2019, when the repo market failed, um, you may, some of your listeners may recall that, and um, February uh, 2020. Um, and during that time, I mean, we forget that the S&P actually lost fully one third of its value. Um, uh, it, 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 it collapsed into March. 2020. And it was only then that the Fed reversed course. Instead of tightening, it reduced, well, it had actually begun to reduce interest rates uh, or the Fed funds rate, but it reduced it to zero, which was unprecedented, and instituted uh, QE of 120 billion a month. And I have no doubt that as these conditions move towards uh, a replay of that situation, that any idea of quantitative tightening will be abandoned. And we will, again, get quantitative easing. And what this means is that the inflation machine just cranks up again. So, Alistair, how's, how does it end? Are we, are we headed for this, this, this reset where, where, where people lose confidence in the currency? Are we headed for, you know, Weimar Germany? How, how does it play out? I think it's what I see in this situation is something which is very similar to uh, what happened in France in 1720. And I've, I have repeated this several times, but it's worth noting that John Law, who was a sort of uh, prototype of, um, of Keynes, uh, with, with his policies, 
uh, basically puffed up the Mississippi bubble as a means of trying to generate um, not only income for uh, the state in the form of the king, but also uh, to uh, stimulate the economy. That's, that's what he believed, which actually is pretty much the same uh, as uh, uh, John Maynard Keynes's um, approach to, to, the, to these matters. What happened basically was that he started debasing the currency to support the asset prices, uh, the asset price uh, predominantly being his Mississippi venture. Uh, now, this is exactly what all the central banks around the world are doing. They're puffing up their markets. They're trying to maintain financial asset values by printing currency uh, and uh, encouraging the expansion of um, bank uh, credit. And uh, what you're seeing is instead of it necessarily going direct into circulation, it's going into pension funds and insurance companies and then dribbling out into the economy in that way. But nonetheless, it is inflationary. The lesson from John Law was he failed to maintain his Mississippi bubble. It burst on him. And the currency, within a matter of months, uh, was completely valueless. His paper currency, the French livre. Uh, so we, ha we, we really have a lot of similarities with that today. The difference today is that we have central banks, and you know, multiples of it, rather than just one central bank. And I, I think the, the, the real dangers are from the euro system the euro system, I think, will not take very much to make it collapse. If we get rising bond yields again, then there is no doubt in my mind that these highly overleveraged banks in the commercial network, the eurozone's commercial network, they will start failing. The euro system, which is comprised of the ECB and all the national central banks, will have a problem on their hands trying to... Um, take on board all the failures in their national networks, commercial networks, while at the same time they are demonstrably insolvent. They're inso they will be insolvent because uh, the bond yields, with higher bond yields, um, you know, the, the bonds which they have bought as a result of trying to stimulate the Eurozone economy uh, will, you know, the, will fall in value. And as I say, um, at the beginning of this month, or sorry, last month, because it's the 1st of August, uh, the um, situation was already seven times uh, the, EC, the Eurozone's, um, sorry, the Euro system's equity been wiped out about seven times. Now, it's not quite so bad now because yields have fallen a little bit. So the prices of their bonds will have rallied. But you can see how a complete collapse of the euro system is likely to undermine the whole of the fiat currency system. We don't know how it will play out, but there is no doubt in my mind that London will be taken out by that because we do all the clearing for the eurozone's um, commercial banking network. That's all done in London. And we have enormous exposure also through our own um, commercial banks. Uh, less so, um, America has less of a problem, but the problem is if you take London out, it takes out all the other currencies as well, because we're the main settlement system um, uh, for international currency trading. So this is, this is potentially something which I don't think we have ever seen before. So I'm very, very cautious about um, the future, and I would take a very, very conservative view um, when it comes to one's own finances about exposure and so on and so forth. And that's why I think that um, gold is probably 
a sensible thing to have because it gets you out of the fiat currency system as much as possible. So, Alistair, uh, I know there's a lot of listeners that are probably wondering, uh, you know, why is it we, we've got we've got these 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 sobering facts? These are just uh, uh, you know remarkable things to listen to, um, and yet when you look at gold prices, you look at silver prices, they haven't reacted as one might have expected them to react. Uh, how, how do you square that? Well, I so often get asked this question, and I, I think I think there. Um... There are several answers, uh, the most important ones of which are, I think that the whole of the investment establishment, if I can put it that way, is basically driven by Keynesian economic theory. And Keynesian economic theory denies the idea that gold is your risk-free asset. The risk-free asset in the Keynesian system is US Treasury bonds, probably with a short duration. But you know, if 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 we're looking at uh, really the the um, fiat currency system against uh, a, a proper sound money system, then there is no doubt about it. Gold is what you should be having, but it's just not recognised by the investment establishment. That's the first thing I would say. The second thing I would say is that the investment establishment, in this form, I mean bullion banks, are short. In other words, they have sold paper gold paper silver, paper platinum group metals, and uh, they need to cover those positions. So they will always encourage a fall in the metals prices so that they can make profits. So that's the second thing. And I think um, if you look at history uh, and you look at commodity prices priced in gold, actually what you see is the volatility is not in the gold price, it's actually in the currencies. And this is a, really a quite remarkable discovery because just, just look at a chart of uh, the oil price in dollars. Compare it with gold. Since 1950, the price in dollars has gone up from, I think it's something like $2.68 a barrel to currently we're trading at about $94 a barrel. In gold, the price has merely fallen by about 30%. That is all. Now, that is a remarkable record of stability, pricing oil in gold. And I think that's something which, with the declining uh, fiat currency system, I think increasingly oil exporters around the world, and particularly I mean in Asia, um, they will be looking, I think, uh, more and more towards having something like gold to be paid in rather than declining fiat currencies. And we can see already that the um, petrodollar is actually past its sell-by date. So, Alistair, do you see, last question, do, do you see the world returning to some type of gold exchange standard currency system? Well, it should do, Dennis, but I think that the route to that solution is going to be fraught with all sorts of misconceptions, um, politics, um, geopolitics, that to see this sort of, you know, sensible return, I think, is very unlikely. Now, having said that, if we get the sort of crisis which I believe is in the wings, then people's attitudes will change very, very sharply. Now, insofar as you can have political stability, they could well move towards the right conclusion. But I think in many nations, there is unlikely to be political stability as a result of this, um, the consequences of uh, such a, um, 
a slump um, and a collapse in currency purchasing uh, powers. That being the case, we're already seeing this. I mean, the Dutch farmers are revolting. Uh, the Italians, as usual, <laughs> you know, they don't like their governments at all. You can <laughs> see that on the continental Europe, there are all sorts of political problems being stored up. And I just, I would be very, very surprised if we get through some sort of crisis on the scale that I've been talking about without major political uh, disruption, changes, um, revolutions even in some countries. This, this is not going to be an easy time, Dennis. It's going to be a very, very difficult time. And the move towards uh, proper uh, gold-backed currencies, I think, is not going to be a straightforward question of suddenly they've seen the light. No, I think there's going to be quite a lot to go to wade through before we get to that point, if we ever do. Well, my guest today has been Mr. Alistair McLeod. Uh, his company is Gold Money. You can read his research at goldmoney.com and click on the Our Research tab. Alistair, uh, a half hour with you goes by so fast. I very much appreciate your time. I know you're a busy guy, and uh, the listeners always enjoy having you on the program. Love to have you back down the road, and, and thanks again for joining us. That's very much my pleasure, Dennis. Thank you for having me on. We will return after these words. Welcome back to the RLA radio program. I'm your host, Dennis Tubergen, and thanks again to Mr. Alistair McLeod for joining us on today's program and giving us his perspective and insights. The August special report is titled Five Reasons to Consider a Roth IRA Conversion Now. I'd be very glad to send you a copy of the report as well as the August newsletter. Uh, as well as a couple of my best-selling books to give you some resources to help you potentially navigate the environment in which we now find ourselves. All you have to do to get this box of information absolutely free is visit the website requestyourreport.com. The website, again, is requestyourreport.com. You know, for those of you maybe that are not familiar with the concept of a Roth IRA conversion. I wanna take some time in this segment to talk to those that have a traditional IRA, to talk to those of you that have a traditional 401k, because there may be some opportunities for you to save some taxes long-term. And it may even be possible as we talk about in this month's special report, to even put yourself in a position that you have a retirement that is completely tax-free. Now, let me say before I start to talk about this in a little more detail that there is no financial or tax planning strategy that is universally applicable. However, developments over the past couple of years have made Roth IRA conversions a lot more attractive and a lot more viable for many retirement account investors. And by retirement account investors, I mean IRA owners and those that have money in a 401k. Now, starting at the very basic level, a traditional IRA or 401k account allows an investor to take a tax deduction for the contribution to the retirement account. Now, both traditional IRAs and 401ks allow for this deduction to be taken. The investor can then invest the IRA or 401k principal 
wherever she chooses, and any growth on that investment takes place on a tax-deferred basis. Then when the money is withdrawn from the account during retirement, the withdrawals are subject to income taxes. These withdrawals are now classified as ordinary income. Now that's a traditional IRA or 401k. A Roth IRA or a Roth 401k is, at least from a tax standpoint, the polar opposite of a traditional IRA or 401k. Contributions made to a Roth IRA or a Roth 401k are taxed. An investor who makes a Roth IRA deposit can invest that deposit any way he likes, and any growth experienced on the Roth account will take place on a tax-free tax basis. Now, withdrawals at retirement are also tax-free. Now, under current tax rules, any investor who owns a traditional IRA has the ability to convert that IRA to a Roth IRA by paying the taxes on the converted amount. So if you have $100,000 in a traditional IRA and you want to turn that into a Roth, you can do that. You just have to pay taxes on the $100,000 that's converted. Now, while that may sound like a bad idea to you, in many cases, it can be something that you should seriously consider given that when you're talking about the tax liability on a traditional IRA or the tax liability on a traditional 401k, the question is not, are you going to pay the taxes on the balance? The question is, when are you going to choose to? Now, I would be very remiss if I didn't address the notion of getting an income tax deduction for making a contribution to a traditional IRA or, or IRA or 401k. Now, here's the harsh reality. The tax savings realized for making a contribution to a retirement account, like an IRA or 401k, it's not a deduction at all. It is a loan from the IRS that needs to be, needs to be repaid at a future point. So if I make a $7,000 contribution to an IRA, which I am entitled to do, I can take that $7,000 contribution and I can use it to reduce my taxable income. Now, if I make a $7,000 donation to my church or my favorite charity, as long as I can itemize my deductions, I can use the $7,000 donation to this charity as a reduction to my income as well. Here's the difference. When I make the contribution to the charity, I don't have any strings attached to that deduction. But when I make a $7,000 contribution to my IRA account and I use it as a reduction in income, I use it as a deduction, I am now entering into an investing partnership with the IRS. The IRS will share in the growth of my account and any money I take out of that account at some future point will be considered taxable income. So my point is this, if future tax rates change, and there's a bill pending right now that would make tax rates less favorable, as we anticipated might happen, you will end up giving the IRS more of your retirement account. It's for that reason I would urge you to order the August special report and learn about the five reasons that exist today that you might want to consider a Roth IRA conversion. I'd be very happy to send you a copy of that report as well as the August newsletter. Visit Request Your Report. Dot com and I'll be glad to send it to you. Again, requestyourreport.com is the website. When you go there, just let me know where to mail this box of information, and I'll be very glad to do so. That's my program for this week. 
Hope you got something you can use. I'll be back again next week.